Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 6, and we have a massive passage in front of us. And so actually, I'm going to read part of it, and then we're going to go into depth into Stephen's sermon. But you guys remember that we left the scene where the church ordained seven men to carry on the mercy ministry, Stephen being one of those, and he finds himself on a street corner performing signs, preaching the gospel, and gets into trouble there. I'm going to pick up Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witness who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then Stephen gives a 53-verse sermon, which we pick up at the very end in verse 51, where the accused now accuses his accusers. And he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they have killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Let's pray together. Father, Pray that you will forgive us of little, small, tiny, minuscule thoughts, prayers, definitions of you, and you would take Stephen's sermon and you would blow this vision of you wide open into a glorious, thundering God who is well worth giving up our life, our soul, our self in the service of. You can do that if your spirit lives inside of us. And so we plead to you in Jesus' name, amen. Now friends, I want to do a little exercise here. I want you guys to kind of think back over the past maybe five or 10 years in your relationship with God. Uh, Some of us in this room have been walking with him that long. Some of us have only recently come to faith. But as you think of the last several years and your relationship with God, I want you to come up with a word or a phrase that could describe God. Just think about that for a moment. If you're taking notes, you can jot down. It's hard to do. What's a word or a phrase that could describe God as you've seen him in these past few years? Now, it's amazing that in a room this size, we would have a lot of different answers. I mean, we worship the one true God, but many of us have seen different sides of God, depending on where we've been, and it just continues to show us just how multifaceted and glorious God is that no one story in this room, no one word, no one phrase could possibly contain him. 
all of us have seen different parts of God depending on where we're standing. And that, of course, reminds us of a very familiar Indian parable. I wonder if you've heard it before, but the parable goes something like this, that there were three blind men walking in the woods and they came across an elephant that they had never encountered before. Have you guys heard this? Never mind that the elephant is one of the biggest killers in India, okay? Just suspend that for a moment. I've touched a wild elephant. He almost killed me. Don't do this. These guys, they each grab a different part of the elephant, and they're blind. They can't see. And one guy grabs the trunk and says, well, I know what an elephant is. An elephant is like a snake. And another guy is holding on to the ear, and he says, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm touching this thing. He feels more like a fan. And another guy's got his arms wrapped around his leg and says, no, I'm telling you, an elephant is like a tree trunk. Well, the parable is meant to teach relativism that each of us, all the world religions, have a different view of God, you know, and they all can be somehow true together. Um, And that's a cute, quaint parable that would all fall apart if the elephant actually spoke and revealed himself And the God of the Bible speaks and reveals himself so that we are not lost with our own definitions of him. And Stephen's 53-verse sermon is a magnificent tour of the multiple facets, truths, glories of this God. Stephen starts his sermon in verse 2 of chapter 7 by calling God the God of glory. I love that, and that's our prevailing theme, and I want us to settle in like these blind men in the forest and hear these thundering aspects of God. I've only got seven points from Stephen's sermon. We're going to meet the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, the rescuing God of Joseph, the incarnating God of Moses, Messiah-predicting God of Israel, enemy-defeating God of Joshua, favor-finding God of David, house-building and transcending God of Solomon. And we're going to do it in 20 minutes, okay? So hang on. We're going to start where Stephen starts with the covenant-keeping God of Abraham. There's something you need to know about God, and that is he can't tell a lie when he says something, it is as good as done. You read it in his word, and he will never rescind on what he says, even if it takes a while, and even if it doesn't look like we thought it should look like, he will be true to his word. So in chapter 7, verse 6, God tells Abraham, you're in the promised land as a guest and a visitor, but this whole land will be yours. But, he says, your offspring will be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. And it's like, gee, Lord, thanks. You're giving me this incredible gift of the land, but my people are going to suffer 400 years of slavery. And you'll notice that the Lord doesn't make a single excuse or give a single explanation for why that is. He's not backpedaling in front of Abraham and saying, well, Abraham, I'm trying to get you there as quick as possible, but it's going to take some time. The Egyptians, they're stronger than they need to be. The God of glory never takes the defendant's chair against his creation. He's never on his heels. He's never answering our hard questions that he chooses not to answer. He simply says, Abraham, we're going to do this. 
and we're going to do it my way. And he says that today. Church, we're going to do this. It's as good as done, but we're going to do it my way. Christian, we're going to do this, but we are going to do it my way. And verse 8, though God's word is good on its own, he chooses to double down and give a covenant to his people, an extra formal promise to show that it will be true. He gives Abraham a sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, which we're going to study in that Zoom at 7 p.m. on Tuesday. That is baptism in the new covenant as if to say, I don't need to do this, but I will do this for your sake. I will give you a physical sign so that you can be sure that my covenant is as good as done. I will be true to my word. That's helpful. It's helpful to have a sacrament sign of the covenant because no sooner do we get it from God than all of a sudden doubts creep in and afflictions creep in. And speaking of, I want to introduce us to the affliction-rescuing God of Joseph. Now, I wonder if anybody is feeling afflicted this morning. In fact, let's ask that the opposite way. Is anybody not feeling afflicted this morning? Anybody not have a human being who is after them or suffering that is dogging them or a besetting sin that they're falling into? Anybody not in that situation today? Raise your hand so we can celebrate with none of you. Every single one of us is feeling some kind of affliction from without, within. Wonderful, I cannot wait to introduce you to the God of Joseph. Now, Joseph is Abraham's great-grandson. We know his story. He was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He finally got dumped in an Egyptian jail cell. And if you think you got afflictions, tell that to Joseph, who is in a dank Egyptian dungeon at this point, until verse 9, that most precious of biblical phrases in the Bible, but God. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. That verse 9 sounds a lot like Psalm 103, which was our assurance of forgiveness that says, Blessed is the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. Christian, God is the affliction rescuing God of Joseph and us. He knows how to draw us up out of the pit and to crown us with his steadfast love. You see it in Joseph. You're really going to see it in Moses because you need to meet the incarnating God of Moses. Now this is fascinating. Sometimes when God comes to help, he does it from above. God controls all things. The hearts of kings are in his hands. He can do his bidding. And sometimes he helps us from above because he can change people and circumstances and landscapes and bring us aid when we most need it. But there are other times that God chooses to come down and help us from below in his presence. 
So Joseph, he got the God from above, right? God doesn't appear in his glorious form to Joseph. Instead, he orchestrates events we couldn't have imagined. And Joseph goes from jail cell to second in command in Egypt. And that's all God's doing from above. And it's marvelous. And he could have done the same thing for Moses. But in that situation, he says, you know what? I'm going to come down and appear to my people in glory. There's something to be said for help that shows up in the flesh. As I was thinking about that, I thought about a situation in this church about a year ago where an elder and I had to uh, handle a hairy confrontational situation at the church. And so we were there and the, the person was there and we called a friend and just said, hey, there's two of us, that should be plenty. Just Stay by your phone. If we need you, we'll call you. We'll get help from you, you know, and we'll tell you about it later. Well, we go to get in this situation, and I glance out the church window, and the friend is there pacing the sidewalk out here with a pistol in his pocket and his head bent in prayer. How's that for help? I mean, that's incredible. I don't recommend that. That's not what I was asking for. There are liability things to talk about with that in our insurance company, but dang, when something goes down, that is the man I'm calling. That's pretty cool. This past Tuesday, I had a brutal day, and I texted Trevor, and I said, I had a brutal day, and before I could blink, the man is at my house with a bottle of bourbon, a Bible, and a Richard Sibb sermon, and it was beautiful. Do not dismiss the incarnational power of presence. Do it this week for somebody. When you do it, you have learned it first from the God of Moses. You skip 200 years from Joseph to Moses and We know his story. He grows up in Pharaoh's house and he kills an Egyptian, so he needs to flee. And he spends 40 years in the wilderness and he despairs that he'll ever see his people again until God appears to him in a burning bush. This is not a mirage or an illusion because he says, Moses, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. And God tells him in verse 34, this is what I'm gonna do. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. Moses' God is the God who comes down. He's the God who incarnates. He's the God who shows up, the God who brings salvation from below. He doesn't set this globe spinning in creation and then sit back to wonder if we can handle ourselves and the afflictions we face. When God heard the Israelites groan under the slavery in Egypt, he showed up in the burning bush to set his salvation in motion. And when God hears the groan of his people under this sin of slavery today, he has shown up in his son Jesus in the flesh to set his salvation in motion. God is not just the God who is for us or behind us or cheering us on. The incarnational God is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the God who is with us. Now he did it for Moses, 
but he's been promising he would do it again for a long, long time because you need to meet number four, the Messiah predicting God of Israel. Stephen, you'll realize when you study this sermon later in your free time, spends four paragraphs on Moses. And he does that because you'll remember those false witnesses were accusing him of breaking from the Jewish story, blaspheming God, dismissing the temple, saying, talking smack about Moses. And so, so Stephen needs to show actually this is one and the same story. And after four paragraphs on Moses, he teases us in chapter 7, verse 37, when he says, This Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That's a quote that Stephen memorized from Deuteronomy 18. And he meant that Moses is a signpost for Jesus. And Stephen didn't learn that on his own. He learned it from Peter because Peter had already quoted that verse back in chapter 3 when he was in front of the council. He said, look. Moses has been telling us since Deuteronomy, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. God has always had this plan in mind, being promised from the Old Testament. That means this covenant-keeping, affliction-rescuing, incarnating God of the Old Testament has his plan for the Messiah underway, which is very bad news for our adversary. Because I want you to meet the enemy defeating God of Joshua. Check out this introduction to Joshua in verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought the tabernacle in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. Now it's amazing that God has a different lot in life for every single one of us. Every one of our stories is different from each other. And you read the Bible and you realize very quickly there are a few saints that God puts in leadership during times of peace. He raises them up and he says, Isaac, you're going to live a season and lead in a season of relative peace. And then there's a bunch of saints that God raises up and says, your lot in life will be war. Men like Joshua. God called Joshua to burst into Palestine like a man possessed and defeat 31 kings who were entrenched in that place. This was a man well acquainted with war. And if he were sitting here this morning and we did our cute little exercise, what do you think about God in the last five years? And some said love and some said kindness and one said friendship and you got to Joshua and you said describe your relationship with God over the past 10 years, he would say something like this. No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. When I think of God, that's who I think of. You got this gospel swagger in Joshua of a man who has seen God destroy enemies before him. And that God is yours and mine in Joshua's stead when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, deliver us from evil and deliver us from the evil one. Do it today. 
God is able, but he's more than able. He's willing because he is the favor-finding God of David. Now, we've covered a lot of ground, a thousand years of history in 20 minutes. I know our minds are spinning. We got half the points written down. We forgot the other half. That's okay. You really got to lean in for this one in verse 46. I want you to hear what Stephen says, God says about his servant, David. Verse 46, David, who found favor in the sight of God which sounds a lot like Moses back in verse 20. When he was born, it says he was beautiful in God's sight. Now I ask you this morning, we got believers here, we got unbelievers here, we got members and visitors, we have adults and kids. Is there anything in this world that you could name above, here, or below that is more precious to a human soul than to be found favorable and beautiful in God's sight. If there is, I don't know it. I haven't heard about it and I haven't found it. This is the pearl of great price. But when we read it in our Bibles, we have this knee-jerk reaction that that kind of description belongs to the Moseses and the Davids because there are some guys who kind of have this inherent favor and beauty in them. They've done some grand things for God. They deserve to be found favorable in God's sight. And if you thought that this morning, if you thought you couldn't take your name and replace it for David or for Moses, then I am convinced that you have not been listening to a word that Stephen has said in his sermon because he has just given us a thousand years of Christian history of men and women who do not deserve the favor, the beauty, the kindness of God and yet they receive it in the gospel. And when you stand up, saint, born again in him, standing in Christ, Just put yourself in a long, long thousand millennia year history of the church in which you again who were unfavorable have found favor. You who were unlovely are now beautiful in Christ. You are these things before the living God. You have found his favor. We sound like Isaiah 28.5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be to them a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. That's what we are in Christ. How glorious. All of these truths, all of this about God, all of what he has accomplished is ours in Christ. But I don't want to end there because Stephen doesn't end there. And we don't want to give the impression that as beautiful as Stephen's sermon is and as much as we believe these things, that he could be contained by anything we've said. And so we need to end with the house building and house transcending God of Solomon. We learn in verses 47 and 48 that Solomon built God's house, his temple. We learn in the New Testament that we, the church, are now the temple of the living God. 
But lest we think that we've somehow contained or domesticated him there in the temple or here in the church or our doctrine or Stephen's sermon or my sermon, he climaxes with this quote about God from Isaiah 66. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool, God says. What kind of house? What kind of sermon? What kind of catechism? What kind of prayer? What kind of off-the-cuff description do you give to your neighbor? What kind of systematic theology? What body or corpus of songs have you sung or tears that you've cried could possibly, possibly contain but a fragment of this God? What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all things, all things? It's to that God that we bow and we pray today. Let's do it. Glorious, glorious heavenly Father, you are the God of glory. You will not be contained in any of these descriptions or flattery or even praise, but you stand supreme above all things and our only hope in life or death is that you condescend as the God who shows up to deliver. We praise you for these things. We magnify your name in Jesus' name. Amen.